Hello, my name's Tom. Um, for those who don't know me, I moved to Bournemouth about six years ago and joined Citygate Church. Um, I actually moved to Bournemouth with the express intention of marrying Irena, who was in the, lead, the leadership team here. She didn't know it at the time, but happily it all worked out okay. Um, and I'm happy to report that we're happily married with a, with a two-year-old who is probably somewhere causing chaos at the back right now. Um, we're in the middle of a series on John 15, and the title of the whole series is Abiding. And before we actually dive into it, I thought it was just worthwhile just recapping a little bit as to where this passage comes, because not everyone would necessarily be following the entire series as we run through to this point. John 15 sits in the middle of a long passage of teaching, which John recalls in his gospel, which takes place the night before Jesus is crucified. So it starts off um, at the time of the Last Supper, and we have the scene of Jesus washing his, his disciples' feet. Then a bit after that, there's the scene where Judas leaves the disciples. He then goes off to find the soldiers to betray Jesus later on that night. Jesus then gives his disciples a new commandment, which is actually very simple, love one another. But it's so, it was seen as so new at the time that it actually gave its name to the entire day. When we talk about Good Friday, we know what that means. When we talk about Ash Wednesday, well, we might know what that means. Maundy Thursday is actually named after that new commandment, because a new commandment I give to you, in Latin it was called Mandatum Novum, Maundy Thursday. That's why that day is named for what it is. And then after that, we have some more teaching where Jesus says explicitly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he spends a long time teaching about Jesus, about the Father, and also about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that actually the Holy Spirit is mentioned all the way through what we're talking about, about today. Not necessarily explicitly in the verses that we're looking at, but in the section that we're looking at, it's crucially important. So then we come to the section on the vine, John 15. And we're going to start by just recapping the entirety of the passage that we're working through as a series. And then we're going to just focus in on four verses in the middle of that. So if we can bring up the next slide, please. Then this is reading from the NIV version. I am the true vine, this is Jesus speaking, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Amen. So it's an amazing passage. And today we're going to be focusing on just four verses, starting at verse four and going through to verse seven. And I'm actually going to switch to the ESV version as we go into detail today. Normally we use the NIV here, but I chose the ESV partly for that very first word. This whole series is called Abiding. And we're going to be looking a little bit later on at why that word might have been chosen in this translation. So in this translation we have, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So that's our passage for today. And... I want to talk about three things today. Not going through necessarily verse by verse in order, but picking up three themes that are all the way through them. The first of them is that we're going to look at what's meant by fruit and fruitfulness. Because it comes up all the way through this entire long series which we're looking at. Secondly, once we've done that, then we're going to look at those, to be honest, slightly scary verses in the middle about the non-fruitful branches. So we had this a few weeks ago when we were looking at verse 2. But there are these sections here which do need some some interpretation, I think. Should we be worried about them? Well, no and yes. Not in the way in which we might be afraid we should worry about them, but there's definitely stuff there that we should be taking mind and thinking about. And finally, we're going to look at this abiding word. It's a fairly old-fashioned word, but what does it mean? Why do we still have it in our translations sometimes? So, fruitfulness, first of all. What's meant by fruitfulness? I suggest it's as broad and as simple as whatever brings glory to God. That's it. So in English language, we've got several words for plants, but interestingly, I don't know a word that would be the opposite of a weed. Um, There's plants which are where we want them to be, there's plants that where where we don't want them to be, and fundamentally, the difference between a weed and a non-weed is simply does the gardener want it to be there? If he's growing it for food, or if he's growing it for ornamental value, great, it's a plant you want to keep. If it's not where you want it to be, it doesn't matter how tasty the fruit, it doesn't matter how ornamental the flower, it's a weed, and the chances are that the gardener will be removing it and putting something else in its place. Whether a plant is right or not is entirely down to the purpose of the gardener. In the case of a vine, then the purpose normally you would think would be grapes, and either for eating or possibly for turning into wine further down the line. But as an example, my dad has a patio with a trellis over it, and there's a vine which grows all over it with these lots of little small clusters of grapes, which are maybe about about that big, and they are completely inedible. 
So whenever we go there, we spend an awful lot of time trying to persuade my two-year-old son that, no, he shouldn't be picking these things off and eating them because they really, well, certainly they wouldn't taste nice. They might even be poisonous, I don't, I don't know. But certainly they're not there for eating. But it's not a weed because as far as my dad is concerned, they're not supposed to be eaten. They are there purely as ornament. That's their purpose. That's why he's there. And that's why it's a plant which is in the right place producing the fruit that is appropriate for that particular plant. Now, when it comes to us, there's different sorts of fruit that we could be thinking about in our lives, different things that could be God's purpose for us. So God knows exactly who we are, and he loves us, and he also knows who we could grow to become over time. None of us, when we become Christians for the first time, we think that's it, we're just going to stay exactly as we are now for the rest of our lives. God wants us to grow. He's got someone in mind for us to become in terms of character, in terms of abilities, in terms of ability to love each other. And that might be different from person to person. And the key question for fruitfulness is, are we listening out to what God wants us to be doing next, to where God wants us to go next? What's our vocation next? For some of us, God will give us a vocation which will last our entire lives. For others of us, God might give us a vocation which is only for a season, for a period of time. And that's fine but we just have to be listening to God for that sense as to, is this for now? Is this forever? Is this time to actually think about, about something new? Are the old patterns in my life grown stale? Do I need to do something else with them? So there's fruit which is specific, and it might be one of the gifts we often talk about, the gift of, of evangelization, the gift of prophecy, as we heard about from New Day earlier. It might be a gift which is for society, something which we do to help other people. But ultimately, the measure of fruitfulness, it isn't how fruitful we think that we're being. We may not know the impact of our fruitfulness over time. For every Hudson Taylor whose work is well known and work in the mission field is sort of written about and told about, there are other missionaries who died thinking that they were a complete failure. They saw almost no fruit from their work in the course of their life, but only after that, in generations to follow, did the seed which they planted then take root? So we just don't know, in some areas, how fruitful that we're being. We can know in that regard whether we're being faithful or not. We can be keeping close to God in prayer and actually asking, is this still where you want me to be? And sometimes the answer will be yes, even though we can't see why, and that's fine. So that's one sort of fruitfulness. The other one is probably a more general one. So, Paul in Galatians gives us some of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And these are the fruits of the Spirit which we'd expect to grow in all of us as Christians over time. So, we can look back and actually say, well, actually, is my character changing? Am I actually becoming not just more Christ-like, but for me, more Tom-like over time? Am I becoming more the person that God wants me to become? And that is a type of fruit as well. And that's a type of fruitfulness which we can actually point to and actually look back over our life and say, yes, definitely I can see God at work in me in that particular respect. So that's fruitfulness in two very different ways. One, the sort of the explicit working out of fruit from a vocation, one in terms of the action of the Spirit in us, and those will be linked, of course, 
but I, I think there is a distinction between them. Okay, then we come to a tricky bit. So we've looked at fruitfulness, and now we have to ask what's meant by these withered branches, these branches which are producing no fruit. And as I said, it's a theme that comes up in this passage in a couple of places. So in verse 2, we've got the Father cutting off every branch that bears no fruit. And in verse 6, today, we've got branches which are thrown off, wither, and are collected up to be burned. And you could read this as saying, well, as a Christian, is God setting me a target? Do I have a quota of fruitfulness which I need to be hitting in order to stay in God's favor, in order to stay being, being a Christian? Does God turn to me and say, okay, in 2022, I need you to achieve this, 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 and this, and if you do that, fantastic, but if you don't, sorry, off to the fire with you. And the answer, of course, is no. That, that's not the God who we see in Scripture, that's not the God of the New Testament, that's not anything which, which Jesus is saying at all. But we do need to interpret this verse. We can't just ignore it. So we need to place it in its context. And we have this general principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. And in particular here, we can be sticking entirely within the Gospel of John. A little bit earlier in his Gospel, um, when, when John is having uh, Jesus saying how he's the bread of life, Jesus goes on to say this. This is from chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. So even within John's Gospel, we have this very clear teaching that actually our security is in Jesus' hands, not in our own. And if you're anything like me, that is a source of massive relief. Secondly, we need to think about the context as to who Jesus is speaking to. So at this point in the evening, Jesus is speaking to the 11. So his disciples, but with the exception of Judas, who's gone off to betray him. Now, everyone that he's speaking to will be as far as you can be before the crucifixion, the resurrection, the giving of the Spirit, Christian, that they're followers of Jesus. They're people who Jesus was given by the Father, as we saw earlier in chapter 6, and who are there to learn about and to then follow Jesus' will. So it isn't that here we're talking about people necessarily who, who aren't Christians. There is... A a sort of a, a, a similarity here between verses three and, and verses four that comes in here. And there's a sort of a play in word in the Greek which, which doesn't really come through in the English. Um, in verse three, Jesus is saying that you are already clean because of the word that I've, I've spoken to you. And that word for clean, katere, is kind of similar to the, um, sorry, uh, katere is the word for pruned, which we're seeing in verse 4, which is kind of similar to the word kataroi we get for being cleaned. Um, we, we, in English, we talk about a sense of catharsis sometimes. You're getting something off your chest, being, being cleaned as to what's, what's going on. But note this in verse 3, Jesus is saying that you are already clean. 
So again, this isn't something which is going to be happening over, over time. This isn't something where there's a quota to be met to stay clean going forward, but you are already clean. And what's happening after that is, is it's very much as to well, how are you clean? You're clean by the word that I've spoken to you. Now remember, the words in John's gospel, it's not just verbal words. John kicks off his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So this word which Jesus speaks to us is actually Jesus himself. It's the life of Jesus himself in our lives which then has cleansed us. So at this point we're, we're clean. So then what do we make about these, these fruitless branches? Well, there's been a huge amount of ink sort of spilled about this and a huge amount of debate. One idea which makes sense to me, but maybe not to everyone, would be that these fruitless branches, we're talking about people who haven't yet actually committed to Jesus. So we know, for example, that Judas was around Jesus for probably three years during the teaching, but obviously never quite committed to him and never, never actually gave his life, never actually realized what that, would, what that would mean. So it might be that here we're actually talking about people who aren't actually Christians, have never given their lives. But on the face of it, you, you can't always tell. Another possibility is simply that we're just taking the metaphor too far. There's some types of wood where when a particular branch has run its course, you can actually use that wood again. Um, so olive trees, for example. Uh, it's very common to find sort of little carvings of olive wood from the Holy Land, wherever it might be. Um, but you can actually do something useful with, with what's left at the end of the plant. With vines, you can't do that. Um, once one of the branches don't peace, there isn't enough there to actually make anything from. All you really can do is burn it. So it might be that actually we're not looking at burning here as being actually anything to do with judgment. It just might be the fact that this burning is just the end, actual end of life of a branch when it's finished up with its fruitfulness. So as Christians, we shouldn't really be over-worried as to, well, actually, if I don't hit this target, if I don't meet this standard, then I've lost my salvation. But then what? Salvation for Christians is not the end point, it's the beginning. We're supposed to be taking that salvation. We're supposed to be using the thankfulness to God, to Jesus, for everything which he did that next day on the cross. Thankfulness for the resurrection, thankfulness for the life that's given to us. And then taking that thankfulness and taking God's love and then using that in the world around us to God's glory. Just the idea that you're saved and thank you God and I'm gonna sit down now and wait 60 years until I die, that's not the Christian life at all. God wants us to be fruitful. God has this plan in mind for each of us that he wants us to fulfill. And the warning here is don't waste the opportunity. Don't spend the rest of your life just wondering what it is that you could have achieved, what it is that God could have used you for by just sitting there static. That isn't the, the, the gospel call at all. We should expect the Father to be pruning us for growth, as we heard last week. We should be expecting there to be things in life which push us onwards. But in all of this, 
we should always be thinking, actually, well, what fruit can I be doing? What, what fruit can I be growing here? What can I be doing for God's glory? So, now we come to this, this funny word, abide. And this is really, if you like, it's the how that we're talking about here. So, we know that we need to bear fruit for the Father, for the Father's glory. Well, how do we do that? And the answer here is by abiding in Jesus, by staying close to him, by drawing life from him. And this seems like a very obvious answer when you're at church on a Sunday morning or when you're reading the Bible or when you're in a quiet time. It becomes a very non-obvious answer in an awful lot of our day-to-day lives. We often think just, or we often act as though we draw life from other things, from our work, from our families, from, our, uh, from who our parents might be. Um, we might be drawing life from who our children are and sort of living vicariously through them. We might be drawing life from our friends, we think. But Jesus is very clear in this passage that outside him we can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. The only source of life it's by staying close to the one who made us, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, the one who knew us for all eternity, even before we were conceived. Drawing on the strength of the vine, drawing on the strength of Jesus, it's the only way of producing any fruit at all. And this sounds a bit strange. I'm sure all of us will know people who we think are massively successful in their own fields. Um, you can imagine someone who's founded a charity and that charity is doing amazing work in, in the world. But if that founder isn't drawing life from Jesus in that, then it's entirely possible that God is looking at it and saying, you know what, that's great, but it's really not what I created you for. I created you for something better than that. And we have no way of knowing unless we stay close to God. We don't know what it is we're called for if we actually go away and sort of invent something on our own or even if we're talking to friends and talking to family. If we're not taking these decisions and running them past the Father, then we don't have that, that guidance in our lives and we shouldn't be surprised if actually we don't have that strength in our lives either because it isn't just the, the guidance as to what fruit we should be producing but it's actually the strength to actually go away and do that in the first place that comes from God. Now, we come now to this word abide. And as I said, it's slightly archaic. We don't use it much in modern day English. So, I mean, there's a few phrases it picks up, um, we pick it up in. Mainly fairly sort of fixed expressions as the language fossilizes. I'll abide by the rules. I can't abide that person. Related, my humble abode. So there's this sense of, of abiding at your home, at a certain place where you have a relationship. Interestingly, in an an older translation of the Bible, the King James, then the word abide comes up in the, on the road to Emmaus. So if you remember, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking down the road, teaching two disciples. They don't recognize who he is. But at the end of the evening, as sort of the night draws in, they need to find a place to stay. And so the disciples say to him, abide with us. Come and stay, come and spend the time. So it goes beyond a sense of just proximity. There's a feeling about relationship. You're almost at home, either at the place or in a person's company. So let me give you an example as to how not to abide. Um, 
So when I first went to university, then, like many students, I lived in a hall of residence. And I was told before going up to university for my first year that this is where you will probably meet an awful lot of your friends. You'll go to that hall of residence, you'll meet a whole group of mixed people, um, and you'll probably know them for the rest of your life. And for many people, that was true. Um, but for me, interestingly, it wasn't, in that I ended up in a group of friends who were very much based around the course that I was doing. And we tend to hang around, not just during the day, at, at lectures, but also in the evening as well. So I didn't really get to know anyone um, in my hall of residence very much, or spend much time there. But there was one bit of time you had to spend there, which was breakfast. Um, evening meals, then you could choose whether you went there or not, and you could choose whether you paid for them or not, but breakfast you'd paid for up front. So you might as well be there each morning. And I'd go down to breakfast, and I'd sort of find a group of people, usually the same group of people, who I knew, at least I knew their names. So I knew something about them. And for the first week, this was absolutely fine, in that no one really knew anyone at that point in time, no one knew what anyone was doing, and so just sitting with them wasn't strange. By week two, it sort of became obvious that the people I was sitting with were actually doing things together. They were going to things in the evening, or they were making plans for the day, or whatever it might be, or they had shared experiences, which I didn't, because I was always out with another group, but I was still there at breakfast every day, and gradually saying less and less and less until I'd basically come down to breakfast, sit with them, eat my food, leave, not having said a word. I was a little bit weird, to be honest. And one morning, I was actually called out on it, in that one of them said, look, what are you doing here? I mean, you can't just sort of come, sit down, disappear, day after day after day, and there's no relationship here. You're not doing anything with us, you're not talking to us. What, what are you here for? I wasn't abiding. I was there physically, but there was no sense that there was any relationship whatsoever. And I'd like to say that conversation turned me around and I actually started spending time with them. Truth is, I started skipping breakfast from that point onwards. Not a good example, don't follow that one. But abiding has to mean that there's some influence in your life, or in the life of the people that, that you're, you're with. And abiding is what we were made for. Um, so could, could a band come up, please? Just looking, keep an eye on the time. Um, we were made to abide with Jesus. And this actually comes from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. At the beginning, we have Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God is walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, calling out for Adam and Eve. He wants to spend time with them. It's, it's something, obviously, which has been going on. He's been abiding with them in a garden. And then one evening, tragically, they don't appear because they've eaten from the tree of knowledge and they're hiding themselves. So that abiding with God at the beginning of the Bible has, has been broken. At the end, then we can look at Revelation. This is chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the phone saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So at the two ends of history, being with God is exactly what we were supposed to be made for. Right now, in the middle of history... We have the Holy Spirit, 
and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's a down payment on our inheritance, as Ephesians says. Holy Spirit who prays for us, keeping our relationship with the Father alive. Now, that's the why. Just five minutes on the how. Abiding is supposed to be something we carry with us into our day-to-day life. It's supposed to be with uh, not just at the, the quiet times, not just at the Sunday morning services, but it's supposed to be with uh, when we're um, dealing with a eight, two-year-old or when we're talking to someone difficult at work or whatever it might be. Abiding with God is supposed to be the heart of everything which we do. And that comes out of actually creating a relationship. So God is there, the Spirit is there, but there's also responsibility on us to actually make time to grow that spirit, as opposed to coming down for breakfast, eating and walking out the door as fast as you possibly can. Um, I was recently reading a book by John Mark Cromer. I think quite a few of us in the church have, The Ruth's Elimination of Hari. And there's lots of advice in that as to what we can do. But at the heart of it, I think, it's just being conscious and making conscious decisions about how we are going to spend time with God and not letting that get squeezed out and recognizing when the patterns which we've had, which might have worked for us for months or even for years, recognizing when those patterns just don't work for us any longer. Now, some of us here, actually, we're in a good place as far as that's concerned, in which case, amazing, fantastic. All I would say is just be aware that that can get squeezed out by life and just be aware as to when in future you need to make a change. There are others, and actually I'm very much in this category, where my previous plans for how I would actually be spending time with God just don't work any longer. I mean, quiet times in the morning, I mean, I'm waking up in time between sort of 5.30 and 6.30 typically, and I'm just not in a conscious state of mind to do anything else before, before then. So for me, I need to actually say, well, actually, what is going to work instead? Is it time in the evenings? How does that apply to church? How does it apply to people who I want to be in community with? There's decisions to be made. Now, we're going to go into some worship in a minute, but my plea would be that if you're in the same category that I am, plan to make a plan. I'm not asking you to think now and actually figure out, well, actually, this is how my new life is going to be. I'm going to be spending time with God at this time of the day, as it might be on these days, and I'm going to be going to a new life group or whatever it might be. No. What I'm saying is just make a commitment in the next week. When is some time when you can actually pray and think about this? When can you actually figure out how you're going to make time to abide with Jesus? Because abiding with Jesus is what's going to give us the life for everything that flows from that. Abiding with Jesus is what's going to give us that fruitfulness. And abiding with Jesus is ultimately what is going to give that glory to God.